0: and welcome to Lightworks, a podcast about creativity and ideas in music. Today we're talking to Stereo Mike. Stereo Mike is a good friend of mine and he currently lives in London. He's one of the key figures, I would say, in Greek hip-hop. He was on Eurovision representing Greece in 2011. Uh, He has an MTV EMA award. Uh, He's recorded three studio albums. Uh, Just an all-around really brilliant guy he just recently finished his uh phd at the university of west london on uh, sampling and yeah we had a really great conversation we talked about his history in the music business his sort of history as an artist and just a, also a little bit about his you know his research you know, just finishing his phd and what his dissertation about and here it is i hope you enjoy Hey Mike, how you doing?
1: I'm really good, Zach. Thanks for having me on your show on your yeah, podcast. Yeah,
0: no, no problem. Um, yeah, so let's just get right into it. Um, so uh, basically, you know, start from humble beginnings. You know, what was your sort of musical upbringing like? Like, how did you get into not not just hip hop specifically, but um, just kind of music in general?
1: I think like many people, like you, kind of owe it to your environment. I'm quite lucky. My parents were music lovers uh and they liked a lot of different stuff so uh my mom is from croatia my dad's from greece i grew up in greece mostly um and i think because they both worked in tourism which is how they met Mm. uh, they traveled a lot and listened to a lot of different music so they were into obviously a lot of rock and roll and the stuff people used to listen to in the 60s Mm. um uh, you know a lot of british invasion stuff which got me into the blues and they had friends that would make them mixtapes of John Lee Hooker and people like that. Nice. So starting to connect why some of the, you know, British rock bands my dad liked, like the Animals and so forth, actually have the roots into John Lee Hooker and they were effectively covering a lot of the uh, African-American musicians that I really got into. Uh, I played piano as well and joined bands. And because of the terrible uh, <laughs> economic situation in Greece, we were left without... Uh, musical classes and musical support for all the shows we were doing mm. school. So somehow around high school, just because I was doing them and sort of organizing and arranging and having, you know, bands around I ended up, you know, producing those those shows we did for the national celebrations. Mm. And we kept them a bit punk and rock and roll. So it was quite a good way to get all my mates and friends out of classes and, you know, nice. joining with instruments or joining with voices. And it's sort of, I think that was the first thing that gave me this idea that playing keys is is a bit more than, you know, just playing in a band, which is also awesome. It kind of meant that you could arrange for other people and sort of think about the placement of the other instruments in the band and so forth. So it's one of those kind of negative situations that was a happy accident, you know, because of the lack of funding. We ended up taking matters into our own hands and, and producing these high school shows effectively. Mm. as as bands and as musicians. So I played in a lot of blues and punk initially um, as a keyboard player. Uh, but then that led to synthesizers. And again, because of my parents' love for all, all things classical, Jean-Michel Jarre, electronica, rock and roll, nice. it was kind of blues and electronics. Blues and electronics, kind of, you know, the two major loves of my life, which led to synths and it led to drum machines. Uh, I just... I guess that's a bit of a long answer, but one really important thing that happened because, you know, we were, I think a lot of people in, I guess in the eighties, we were quite tribal about the music we liked, mm-hmm. which I couldn't afford because I liked, I liked a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, a lot of my friends did, but you sort of either dressed as a metaler, as a rocker, or you were into your electronica or rave or hip hop. I was really into hip hop and really into heavy music as well. And then when the Beastie Boys uh well they were releasing a lot of stuff that got you know kind of allowed me to like different musical styles at the same time. But I think ill communication really mm-hmm. became the 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 license, you know. <laughs> um it became the license to sort of play funk, sample it, um, you know, do a punk, two-minute punk hardcore song, but then do some really heavy loops as well. And I think that sort of legitimized the the that the stuff I liked was actually possible to do at the same time, impossible to do on the same record. I think that was the beginning of, you know, sort of a teenage mind kind of going, "It's all good. I can mm-hmm. do. It. I can do all the th- sort of stuff I like." And I think those sort of loves of my life have continued to be sort of parallel streams ever since.
0: Nice. I had a. It's weird. I had a similar experience with with the Beastie Boys, but it was with Paul's Boutique, where. Okay, yeah. It was like my brain was just like you can do that like you can rap over the beatles like i didn't even like that didn't even occur to me as like an option and then that's just exposed me to whole because then i wanted to know where all the samples were from and then that sort of you know was a rabbit hole to fall into especially i mean that's what's interesting about especially that sort of era of hip-hop albums where it's like a treasure trove of just multifaceted, multi-genre sort of sampling just Absolutely, collages yeah. basically that do you listen to one and then it leads you to a million other,
1: you know, records and stuff? It was also a kind of school of music. Yeah. didn't necessarily up with. So, you know, the sort mm. of stuff we were taught by Tribe Called Quest, by De La Soul, by uh, the Beasties, by, I mean, Marley Mar, If you keep going, you know, once we started sort of sample searching and trying to understand a Public Enemy, you know, mm. the, the absolute manifesto of... 300 samples in a record you know and once you start digging about those things you're like oh my god that little that little thing is from there and that little thing is from there so you learn so much about 70s and 60s music and then you know the people who did it quite wildly like De la Hole and the Beasties where things that were not supposed to match you know uh, <laughs> you would have uh, 80s pop records until of a 70s loop until of a 60s little sample uh, that that really sort of was the education of the art of collage and the art of chopping and the art of how things, um, you know, records that we couldn't really make these days with the whole licensing issues and uh, how much more uh, legally difficult the whole minefield is. But at the time, that was a real education of older records as well. Mm.
0: So I'm wondering kind of how, what was your sort of transition specifically to hip-hop as a rapper, producer, like... How did that sort of come to be? Uh,
1: so hip hop was always a big love in terms of listening. And I would always write some poetry and stuff. I never actually regarded myself as the person MCing those things. I was always more of a beat maker, producer, behind the scenes person, which is still what I prefer, what I love. But um, I came to the UK to start a music technology in one of the first uh, music tech degrees up in Leeds, in the north of mm. the UK. And this was in just after the mid-90s, ninety six. So I left Greece because that was the, one of the only courses in Europe, really, that was doing that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just packed a bag, a synthesizer, pretty much, and, and left. Um, and that was amazing because uh, Leeds College of Music was um, really very much classical and jazz. And, and they were also doing music tech and electronics and all the other stuff and, computer and computing and music tech uh, in the university side. But the fact that we had access to the old uh, Jazz College of Music meant that we had studios and I actually experimented with microphones and oh, no. desks and recording devices. And I sort of offered myself up to record anybody because I knew I wasn't very good at miking up and recording natural instruments because of the way, you know, we didn't have those facilities when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of better with electronics and programming, not very good with, you know, Recording a trombone, a horn section, a jazz drummer, a Hammond organ—those sort of things. Even though I played, you know, the keyboards in a lot of those bands, I didn't know how you do them from the other side of the glass. Uh, so I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, anybody needs recording, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll help. So for three years, that's all I did, day and night. The English weather helped. There was nothing to do outside. It was very mm-hmm. cold for a Mediterranean dude in in, in the north of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was really my sort of in with, with becoming comfortable with the studio. Then when I moved to London to do a master's degree, one of the first jobs I got after it was for a hip-hop, a small hip-hop studio in Hackney uh, called Vault Recording Studios. And I was very, very lucky. It was very underground, uh, but it was quite good. And because of the contacts the owners had, it meant that I got recording pretty much straight away. Some of the... Creme de la Creme of UK underground hip-hop at the time, people like Task Force, um, Skinnyman, you know, people like that. And it was an amazing education because it was m- very much more about recording vocals and and mixing what the beatmakers had brought to the studio. But it was really being at the scene of a very exciting, happening, you know, uh, real scene in the UK. Yeah. So, again, this was just engineering for other MCs. But two-step... Um, you know, uh, was happening a lot of the time. A lot of, you know, because uh, UK hip-hop music wasn't getting onto the airwaves a lot. Some of the MCs would look for remixes, would look for two-step remixes, uh, that sort of thing. So I started offering myself to do remixes. Then people found out I was kind of good on keys. There was a lot of roads and keys, a lot of those records. So by day I was recording MCs, by night I was creating remixes. And uh, that sort of brought the producing thing more and more the beat making thing, you know, Mm. as a, as a bigger situation for me, um, cut a long story short, we were producing with an underground, with an independent label in the UK. We were creating a bilingual record at one point to Mm. go to Midem. It was just an idea dropped from the label. I had made the beats for a UK MC, but then we thought I was writing a lot of stuff. Can we try a bilingual version of the same beats, one with Greek, one with Mm. English? So I just got in front of the mic and tried a few things. And then we got amazing feedback coming back from Midem. They really liked the Greek one, probably because it sounded, you know, a bit more unique, more Mm -hmm. um, just different to what was happening at the time. And it was an international scene. So when the label came back from Midem, they were like, there's a lot of interest about this. Um, Would you mind finishing it off, making a whole EP? The whole EP became an album. Then I caught myself having a lot of interest from uh, Warner in Greece, wow. right around the time uh, they fired, you know, about three thousand different A and from around the globe, and Warner were, were cutting down. So when I finally sent them the album, they said, "The album is great. I just lost my job." <laughs> so it was one of those almost had a release on a, on a whole album as a as a Greek MC with with an album I produced myself, and then it wasn't going to happen, but. Uh, that A&R from Warner was such a nice guy, very enthusiastic about the album. He put the word out that there was this great guy living in the UK, did this thing. It's a little bit different to how, you know, great hip-hop sounded at the time. I just because I was doing it with sort of international ears, I was doing it from the UK, thinking about the international market. And that opened up the door. You know, I had a couple of underground releases, a couple of singles um, that got picked up by Pirate Radio. They're really, really big. They became a sort of, you know, my true records with the underground in Greece. And uh, that led to a little distribution deal with Universal. Then I signed the second album with EMI. And that was the big album where uh, I ended up sampling some of the Greek uh, huge folk artists mm. uh, who wanted to be sampled at that point because of what was happening already with my sampling and remixing. Nice. And uh, yeah, I was lucky to work with uh, a lady called Harris Alexei, which is like the John Baez of Greece, you know, and mm-hmm. that opened up the doors to a crossover situation mm-hmm. for the second album. So I kind of find myself emceeing without really ever wanting to be a frontman. Mm. I just wanted to present my beats and situations led to me fronting. And ever since, you know, I ended up making albums where I was the MC on those. Nice.
0: So then what what? sort of inspired the stereo mics, that sort of name. Was it just sort of a, was it uh, just
1: already a nickname or? It's a nickname. It's a funny story. I was uh, a live engineer for UK tours. Uh, at the time, I was also mm. an engineer in the hip studio because, you know, I was a freelancer. I was trying to do as much as I could, playing keys one day, doing live tours another day as a sound, front of house, sound engineer. And I was working with uh, the bass player from the Infidels, a British, great British mm. band. And uh, we were to, we were working together at the University of Westminster as techs as sound technicians. We were students there before, and uh, he kept coming up with nicknames for me when we would speak through the, you know, intercom when we were doing sound checks. The first one was very long and funny. It was Reverend Morikambi, which is a very long story. Lots of stories would happen on the road, and then one day he goes. I think that's a little bit old school and too long. I think you're going to be Stereo Mike from now on. <laughs> so it was kind of like my godfather, and it was just a touring nickname because we used to do that no. in the van, you know, in the tour bus. Mm-hmm. So when I ended up fronting and having to produce the EP straight after that medium, which you're in, so I'm like, everybody calls me Stereo Mike in the musical circles. It's a no-brainer, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm wondering sort of where, how did the...
0: I didn't realize like when you were kind of making all that, you were outside of Greece. So um I'm
1: kind of the wondering Greeks what the Greeks don't know that either. So, <laughs> yeah, The Greeks but, um, actually thought I was living there because yeah. of the amount of stuff that was coming out and hmm. the shows and all the rest. Yeah. So kind of, I guess growing up
0: cause um, yeah, I'm just wondering kind of what the hip hop scene, you know, throughout sort of, I guess a very like brief, brief history of like, sort of greek hip-hop culture like yeah. how that kind of evolved and then when you sort of like put your foot in there and foot in the the door of greek hip-hop i guess
1: yes i'm sort of uh they would say i'm part of the new generation uh mm. now there's a newer generation with a lot of trap and stuff so i'm sort yeah. of the middle generation They called it the new generation at the time um there was a massive massively important public enemy concert that took place in athens mm. uh in in the 90s and uh the day, uh, not the day even after, I think minutes after the show, three of the most important hip-hop collectives in Greece were born. Mm. That show was so inspiring that about three of them, two or three of them were born either that night after the show or just after. It was so inspiring to the Athenian and Greek scene. Um, so there were there were sort of three, three or four incredible and important uh, bands in Greece. Uh, one of them was called Terror X Crew, and they were the sort of anarchic, hardcore mm. political band. Uh, another one was Active ne- Active Member, also quite political, quite poetic as well, very boom bath. And uh, the other one was Emiscubria, which actually means semi-mackerel, and you can tell by the name. They were more the comical political commentary uh, side of Greek hip-hop kind of like a De La Sol sound with very, very funny lyrics. Mm. And they kind of represent, there was another one, FFC, 45 concert soon after that, four of the, you know, big architects, I'd say, of the, of the Greek scene uh, and very much inspired by old school, old school Boomba from the U.S. And um, I've, I've collaborated with the Miscoubri a lot. So I, I was a big fan of them because what they did for the Greek scene was by putting a lot of humor uh, in the music, mm. they actually crossed over into the mainstream because people who were hadn't heard about hip hop, didn't know about hip hop, found the political uh, commentary and the the comedic aspect of it so brilliant, you know, because mm. they commented on politics, on on Greek mentality, on economy, on uh, on the public sector, and all sorts of things so well that you know even middle-aged people would listen to them. So it opened up radio and mainstream channels to a lot of that kind of hip-hop and subsequently to a lot of other hip-hop, more serious, more hardcore sort of stuff as well. Uh, I'm actually part of their collective, Imi's Biz Entertainment, so we're brothers, we collaborate, we do things together when I'm back Mm. uh, with Imi's Cubria. But that was the start, and then that opened up a whole... Generation of hip hop. There were people like Zitan, Nizodanine, Kri, which means Living Dead. They were very much Wu-Tang, clan inspired, very dirty, very, very hardcore, very underground, and lots and lots and lots of other hip hop since then. So it sort of came just before it got super commercialized and super crossover. And I will sit, always sitting in between those two worlds. Sometimes a bit difficult for fans of either side to understand mm-hmm. because I, I'm what you would describe as a conscious rapper. But then my production was quite open minded and mm. sometimes crossover friendly. And the collaborations with the big pop and folk artists in Greece meant that I was talking, you know, serious stuff. But mm. I also had big choruses and, you know, featured artists and and that sort of stuff crossed over. So that's sort of when I came in, particularly with the with the second album, which was the one with all those big collabs that, mm. you know, was um released via EMI and it opened up a lot of doors with radio and music channels and so forth. Nice.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering just cause I've, I've met a couple sort of rappers just sort of bilingual multilingual rappers. I'm wondering just as someone who can barely even speak one language, I guess it's just <laughs> fascinating to me to like how your brain, like on a linguistic level, but also on like a musical level, how, you know, because when you're rapping, you're working on you know plays on words and all these sort of you know levels of signifying and double entendres and that sort of thing. I'm wondering how, just <laughs> in in a way that actually is like easy to convey. I guess, like how your brain kind of works in either language and like certain things you have to do or you have to consider, like in the Greek language versus the in the the English language.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a brilliant question because, you know, I think lovers of hip hop like flow, even, even if you don't understand the language, you know, I, I have a lot of French friends and they, once they translated some of the stuff I loved from the French hip hop scene, I didn't realize it was so hardcore, you know, bands like NTM who I really used to, to love. So I, I grew up listening to a lot of French hip hop. I thought the flow was amazing, but I don't speak French. And in some ways, uh, same with American hip hop, you know, there were, there was a lot of hip hop where, once I understood it better, some of it, I was less of a fan. You know, I just mm. love the flow, but not necessarily, um, the topics in some of the cases. Mm. You know? So, um, I think so. So that's one of the things you, you can listen to flow in that sort of rhythmical way and, uh, what we do with vowels, what we do with consonants. Um, and that in a way, sometimes the ignorance of not knowing the language can allow you to listen to the musicality of the, of the flow. Um, so, you know, I grew up speaking Greek and Croatian, and then English English came on top of that. Croatia has a fantastic hip-hop scene, by the way, as well. Mm. And um, what's interesting is that different languages have different sounds. So, uh, Greek is quite quite rich in the sort of sonic material of the consonants, and it's also mm. a very rich language. It's got uh, over a million words compared to f- about 400,000, roughly, in in English. So... You actually have a lot of options to rhyme, you know, to to play with connecting vowels and, you know, stuff that happens in the Greek language. But I've lived now more than half my life in the UK, in, uh, mm. in London. So, you know, when I, you, you probably know I'm also an academic and I write about these things. I think in English when I think academically. Um, and I talk in English more than I talk in Greek most of the time. But I, I still have an accent because, you know, the way the way your formants and your mouth muscles form, it's really about all that happens up to about five years of age. So I sound like a local in Greek. I actually sound like a person from Piraeus specifically, which is where I'm from, which is near Athens, the big port. Um, and I would always have an accent in another language. So I think when I, when I flip back to writing lyrics, it's almost the teenager, the kid, Mm-hmm. And I write in that kind of way, and it's it feels effortless, you know, even though I don't talk Greek every day. But I don't rap in English, because mm. uh, I actually think, you know, you can recognize people from different cities in America. You can mm. recognize people from different cities in the UK. Um, so... To try and rap in 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 another language, I've, a couple of people maybe do that successfully. I actually think you sound a bit fake, and I did one mm. huge mistake once, which was um, uh, when EMI had a truck, uh, an artist in Greece that went to Eurovision back in 2011, I think, and they needed a featured little part in English. They thought, mm. "Oh, who's a who's our most successful rapper on EMI in Greece, Mike?" And they're like, "Mike, would you want to do that?" And I thought. Yeah, yeah, I could probably do something for that. Cause, you know, it was quite a political track about Greece during the austerity, so it fit with the with a conscious sort of thing I was doing. But all the way along, I thought I was gonna write a rap in Greek mm. and it was gonna be the thing I do. But we were gonna do it over a folk or sort of seven, eight um mm. sorry, nine-four type signature. I thought, Oh, that's super experimental, and I can drop my political lyrics. Instead, they already had A lyricist who wrote something in English, because as many people do with Eurovision, uh, when they come from a small country, they think if you put a bit of English in there, it's going to make it more international. Uh, So I found myself kind of, for the first time ever, rapping a folk songwriter's, pop songwriter's. Uh, a Greek folk songwriter's English lyrics, which just didn't fit at all, you know. So it was one of those I couldn't let EMI and the team down, but I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, this feels completely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And of course, you get quite well known for those three minutes, which don't represent (laughs) the rest of your career. So I can write, I can think in English, I can converse in English, but I like to rap in what's really the father language or what I grew up writing in. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, especially... I've I've talked to other
0: sort of rappers who have kind of like similar experiences and there's a sort of weird thing you know there's people it's like there's a whole spectrum of different opinions of you know there's people who are like I'll only rap in English because you know the music I know growing up was all in English there's oh, I'll do a bit of both or I'll do it in just the language I know best like it's kind of just whatever is most comfortable you know regardless of, you know, I don't know, it's entirely, I guess it's entirely dependent on, you know, the person and their own experiences. And that's, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me. I think um, it's
1: beautiful. Yeah. I think, I yeah. mean, I really like the collaboration when, you know, when you bring rappers from other languages into a track and I've done a bit of that. I think that's really yeah. fascinating when you get, you know, a track with um, Spanish speaking rappers, Greek speaking rappers, Italian speaking rappers, uh, British speaking rappers, um, English speaking rappers and you know I've done a few of those beats and I think that's quite beautiful because you can appreciate the flow within mm. the same track from different people you know and I don't think there's there's a right or a wrong as long as you feel authentic representing what it is you want to say and for me when it comes to rapping and and writing I feel authentic when I write in effectively Greek and Pireo slang you know that's kind of mm. that's kind of the experience of the time I got into into Greek hip-hop and how I understood it and how I started writing. But what's interesting is you can get inspired from hip-hop in other languages mm-hmm. and then write in another language, you know. So a lot of the techniques, a lot of the stuff we we like and study, you know, the greats, uh, you hear them in other languages and you go, that's a brilliant idea, you know. So not biting lyrics, but techniques, getting inspired by... Uh, compound syllables and oh how would I do that in Greek? And that's I think where it gets really fascinating. It's like, oh wow. I could do that with the Greek language and then flip it completely and do something else with those consonants and those words. So it's quite nice to be inspired by other languages from the flow of them and then do it in another one. Totally.
0: Yeah, it's funny. So when I first moved to the UK uh from the States, I was going to a lot of like local hip hop shows. And there's also a decent, you know, beyond just like uk hip-hop there's a decent sort of spanish hip-hop scene in bristol at least um and just because i wasn't used to kind of the local either accent or slang or whatever here it was very confusing because i was like i understand this and i know a little bit of spanish not a lot um but i understood the spanish rappers way more than the 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 british rappers who were speaking supposedly like the same language as me and i was like what it was a complete it That's broke my brain because I was like, "Wait!" And nowadays, you know, I've been here for a few years, and you know, I kind of have become accustomed to kind of the
1: yeah
0: the the flows and sort of the culture here. But yeah, that was a huge culture shock, just being like, "I know I speak the same language as them, but I really don't feel like I do."
1: <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I think I think it's the probably one of the reasons why. Uh, UK hip-hop before, you know, before grime and, and things mm-hmm. like that hadn't actually translated internationally mm-hmm. too well uh, or in America too well, unless it, it did something quite experimental or quite different. So if you think about trip-hop, nobody mm-hmm. had a problem with that or, or Tricky on the Massive Attack records or Portishead doing it in a jazzy kind of way. So everybody loved hip-hop things coming out of the UK, but if you did straight-ahead hip-hop from the UK... Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't translate very well in America or, or sometimes in the rest of the world. And I mean, people knew of, um, you know, Rodney P. in Greece and people like that. And they, I think the more you kept it quite Caribbean British, mm-hmm. the more it felt like, oh, it's a different kind of hip hop and it comes from there. So accents were kind of more important than doing it in a different language. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the French hip hop scene translated internationally better in Europe. Mm-hmm than Brits doing, hip, doing hip-hop doing hip and releasing that stuff in mm-hmm. Europe. And I think it's because of what you said. Um, what does that even mean? Oh, that sounds a little, you know, I, I know a lot of Americans used to say, oh, they're, they're chatting funny, you know, they're talking mm-hmm. funny. I, I kind of get it, but it doesn't feel like hip-hop. And once I it wondered, was done in a different style, like Grime or, you know, Triple, mm-hmm. or, or when, when it was in dance music, like Two Step Garage and things like that, everybody was fine with it.
0: I wonder if it's like a weird sort of like uncanny valley sort of thing where it's like you see or you hear the language and you know it's, you know, it's your language, but because, you know, there's something off that you can't quite understand about it. Like that becomes almost more, it's like more of a turnoff than if you're just hearing something from a completely different language, you know,
1: I get it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I, uh, you know, what dad was telling me about some of the first Greek uh, pop rock bands, sort of sixties time. One of them was uh, a band, Vangelis. The big composer was in just playing Hammond organ. Mm. And you go to see them in the local shows. And and he remembers that when Greeks tried to do pop rock uh, Mm. stuff, they were really uncomfortable doing it in the English language because it hadn't been heard before. So they kind of sang Greek with sort of a bit of a British accent or they Mm. prolonged vowels and tried to sound like, uh, you know, the animals or the Beatles or people like that. So I think, you know, when when a style has been sort of born in in a language, um uh, in an accent, it's part of the sound. It's a mm. bit like hearing, oh, that's a stratocaster, that's a telecaster, that's mm. a fender B bass, and that's uh, you know, a Bronx or a Brooklyn MC, mm-hmm. uh, a New York MC, and that's the, the birth. And then you go, that's how it sounds. So when somebody flips with that, uh, it takes a while to get used to it. For example, Hip hop coming out of the south, um, no, totally, yeah. Like Outkast, you know, there mm. were booed initially until people realized this is fantastic and it's brilliant and it's different, and you know, and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works in a regional sense as well. Yeah, mm. I wanted to ask about. Um, I mean, you just finished a, a PhD mm. at uh, West London. Uh, you just finished a dissertation that I I read recently. Um, just on sampling and sort of making your own sound, sam- your, I mean, you can obviously talk about it better than I can, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to ask a little bit about that and just kind of let you talk about what it is you've been working on in the past, you know, several years.
1: Sure. I mean, we, we're brothers in hip hop arms in this, aren't we? So congratulations to you as well. I mean, it's, a. Uh, I I think it's important to do this, um, for personal reasons, but also for hip hop reasons, because, um, you know, now that kind of rock and classic rock and pop has aged enough, there's, there's been a lot of research in musicology on those things. And uh, hip-hop is now quite old music. You know, it's it's over four decades. And um, there's been a lot of writing on hip-hop, quite often from the sociological perspective or the musicological perspective, which has been brilliant. But think one thing I thought was missing a little bit, or two things I thought were missing a little bit, were, were A... Talking about hip-hop from a music production perspective, you know, so not reversing to a super technical kind of, this is which button you press and this is what you do, because that's more of a sort of textbook, uh, you know, a YouTube sort of way of saying this is how I chop up the beats, but talking about the aesthetics of music production, specifically for hip-hop. So that was my sort of love affair, but also my little fight to try and bring into academia. And um, it was also a love affair and I I I wanted to do a PhD in something I absolutely love and I adore. And I actually wanted to do my fourth album as part of this. So the second part of the fight is to do it as a practice-based PhD Mm. where we're sort of theorizing and making music at the same time. I didn't really want to do a super or an only theoretical uh, PhD where we're just analyzing old records or other people's records or our old records. I wanted to be actually making stuff whilst conceptualizing, theorizing, analyzing. And the reason for that is I th- I feel I'm a musician first and sort of a scholar second. And I didn't want to just stop making music to talk about music. I think yeah. that happens a lot in musicology. And I also wanted to check this. I wanted to see if theorizing too far, reading too much, was going to kill the vibe. Uh, I'm kind of pointing at an MPC right in front of me, and an SP-404 and an 808. Those are kind of my hip-hop tools, and I do that every day. And I'm like, well, if I read a lot, if I theorize a lot, will that just become too analytical? Will I mm-hmm. lose that sort of that teenage angst and excitement of, you know, hitting loops and, and chopping drums and all that sort of thing? So I wasn't going to allow that, and I, I was worried a little bit about that. And I thought, if I create a sort of, I, you know, a program, a sort of research design where I read things, I analyze things, I analyze other people's music, I interview people, then I go back to the studio and make things and think mm. about those things. And then I go back to those theories and check if they were ever true or interesting or whether they can be taken further. Mm. That was kind of the, the passion and the, the driving force. And I'm really happy to say it actually created new inspiration Mm-hmm. doing it in that circular way where you're like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, going back and finding out that that doesn't really work in practice or that really works in practice, but let's try that as well and then go back to the theories and revise them. So I ended up finishing kind of writing a book out of the PhD and it's a, it's a dual release. It's a It's a huge album mm-hmm. and a book and the book discusses the beats and the beats are sort of Driving mm-hmm. the driving the the book, uh, sort of like a madly 100 beats, but I, mm-hmm. I I decided to only release about 69 of nice. you know the best ones, and they're the ones that are discussed in the book. So that was kind of the research design. Uh, initially, it was a bit hard to find a place, UK wise, institutions wise, to do it. Uh, but now it's been met with a lot of love because uh, people really like this idea of actually doing practice and theory. Mm-hmm together rather than separate
0: totally well yeah just just kind of for the listener when we talk about practice-based research this is kind of something you and i do similarly i mean i kind of think of it as a sort of like occam's razor line of reasoning where it's like the best way to kind of talk about something is to just the most straightforward way to do it which is just do it like you know if we want to talk about how we make a beat just make a beat like you know like that's just that's i mean at least that's kind of how i think of it is like Especially when I've done a lot of research on on Jay Dilla, my sort of question was like, okay, how did Jay Dilla sample this in this specific way? Well, just sit down and figure out and see how close I can get, you know, and just make a beat myself. And, you know, like that's kind of, that's kind of what, you know, the basic gist of what we're, we're talking about is to sort of like,
1: absolutely. it's a very
0: creative, you know, creative approach, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's, it's putting theory to the test. You know, I remember mm-hmm. watching you in in many conferences, but the last one in Sweden, in Stockholm, mm-hmm. you did you, you were sort of analyzing techniques by Madlib and Jay Dila, and you showed up in an SP404 and did them. Mm-hmm. You know, as part of your talk, it wasn't just a theory talk. You actually connected your SP404 and played a bunch of academics, some super funky music uh, that was your own, uh, demonstrating those techniques. I think that's invaluable, you know, in, in other disciplines like engineering. Mm-hmm. People talk about, I don't know, wind turbines or whatever. They'll theorize about a concept. They try and build a turbine and they'll go, that worked and that didn't work and that we could build further. So I was always thinking, why don't we do that with music? You know, it's a sort of, um, why don't we show it in real time and and not just talk about it? Because you can't theorize into some crazy rabbit holes mm-hmm. forever. And they, they kind of sound plausible. And I'm not saying it's a bad way of doing musicology. But when it's done in that separate thing, you know, two decades apart, let's talk about a favorite record from two decades ago. That's very valuable. But when we talk about ongoing practice, it's a bit like um, a science or an engineering type of research where we go, does that work? Does that sound nice? You know, in my case, it was about creating mini records, the sample and looking at the aesthetics of why do certain things sound wicked and amazing? Why do certain things sound a bit lame?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, when you make them yourself and that was the biggest sort of effort in this and you know I had to do a lot of failed things before I got some really cool things happening and things I could call yeah that sample-based hip hop that I like that I'm happy to show to the world
0: all right that was my conversation with this much stereo Mike. Uh, yeah, that's really, really great conversation. really, really great guy. Um, if you enjoyed this, then feel free to subscribe on YouTube and follow us on review list of podcasts, you know Spotify, uh, Apple, all that jazz. Uh, and make sure to follow us on social media at Lightworks Podcast, um, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And thank you for listening.